This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to your weekly trip around a big country. I'm Clint Jasper, thanks for joining me. This week we're tracking down heritage trees with a fig lover who's on a mission to find and document Australia's oldest fig plantings, grown from cuttings brought here by migrants starting their new life down under. We'll join a fire crew carrying out an aerial burn in Savannah Country on the Gulf of Carpentaria, and we'll meet the farmers getting their hands dirty in the name of science. You need a shovel and a bucket and manure. So you take your shovel and you find a cow pat that's at least 24 hours old, put it in your bucket with some soil and then empty some water into it and they will float to the top in a graceful style. And then you can collect them and see what you've got. We now know we have nine separate species of introduced dung beetles and four predatory species. Investigating the wonderful world of dung beetles and digging into their power to improve the soil. That is coming up. But first today, how a chance sighting in dense forest has reunited a rural fire brigade with a piece of vintage equipment with a link to Australia's first all-Indigenous firefighting crew. Captain of uh, Newey Creek Brigade um, in Nambuckashire uh, was driving through the Tamban State Forest uh, on his day job and through some trees he noticed a little flash of red and saw an old fire truck and as us firefighters tend to do we got a bit excited and he went and had a look. That little flash of red turned out to be an important piece of firefighting history. Uh, as he got closer he saw that Bellbrook was emblazoned across the side and uh, he's also a member of RAFT which is a remote area fire teams uh, that our uh, Deputy Captain Chunk Wade uh, is a member of. So he was straight on to uh, Chunk saying, uh, we found your old truck, would you like to come and have a look? Chunk got hold of me very excitedly and said, uh, can we go and have a look, Captain? I said, yeah, of course we can. Adam Hall is the current captain of the Bellbrook Rural Fire Brigade on the New South Wales mid-north coast. He explains that when he and his deputy captain went to check out the old truck, he was quickly persuaded to raise funds to purchase it from the collector who owned it, and take on a restoration project. I think about two seconds into seeing the truck, can we buy it, can we buy it please? So uh, after uh, some discussions and photos out on Facebook and um, a GoFundMe page campaign, we were able to uh, get the funds to buy the truck and we have it here at Bellbrook Shed now and we're going down the track of trying to restore it. The truck was supplied to Bellbrook in the 1970s and became the primary truck used by an all-Indigenous branch based at the local Thangati Aboriginal community in the early 1990s. We've got a really rich Indigenous history here at Bellbrook um, and very rich uh, history of Indigenous participation in the brigade. Uh, and the truck in particular uh, actually ended up as the truck that was the first all-Indigenous fire crew and I believe the first all-Indigenous fire crew in the country. So rebuilding it is very important for the community, uh, for our Thangadi people here as well, and helping, helping to uh, bring some pride into our little, little village. Hello, I'm Emma Siossian. I'm here at the Bellbrook Rural Fire Brigade Shed, meeting some of the brigade members who are helping to restore this vintage 1960s Bedford fire truck. This truck holds special memories for Ray Quinlan. His late father, Eric, was part of the original Indigenous crew, inspiring Ray to also join the brigade. Yeah, three points of contact, Ray. It means a lot, like eight, like really much. I just want to keep following his footsteps and looking at all the old photos of him 
you know, in the back in the days, in his fibergate suit. And this makes me real proud of him, and this one will make him proud of me. And I know he'll be looking down at me with it being that proud. The Bellbrook Brigade Deputy Captain, Gerard Chunk Wade, recalls serving on the truck in the 1980s. He says it was a different era of firefighting. Oh, well, I was amazed just to see it come back to Bellbrook and start coming back as the old unit that is just a piece of history because I like that, you know, it's sort of, I think that's just gold, especially as an old petrol truck, petrol being the elusive word here that you go into a fire with a big old petrol truck with big old petrol tanks down the side. <laughs> yeah. I remember standing in the back here where it was, there's not a lot of creature comforts or safety and you had a bar to hang on to and away you went, off to the fire. Yeah. <laughs> Things have changed a lot since then. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, we're, we're a proper fire service now, so, and, um, yeah, and just little things, just the way the truck operates and amazing that we could get it back and hopefully we're going to return it to service just for uh, training and historic service just so people can see it. My biggest goal would be to be able to take it to Kempsey Show and have it, the new truck and the old truck parked next to each other for a couple of days so that'd be great. Captain Adam Hall says thanks to social media there have been offers from around the country to help with the truck's restoration. We've got a lot of interest, a lot of uh, offers for help and assistance, everything from upholstering to uh, bodyworks and engine rebuilds. Uh, but I expect it'll probably take two or three years to get it somewhere near its former glory, at which point we hope to be able to go out and do schools, go to shows, uh, go to rusty iron rallies and so forth. and just show it off and, and uh, put Bellbrook on the map. Uh, we're only a very small, uh, fairly isolated village here and it's nice to uh, be able to show the rest of the world who we are and, and what we stand for. Bellbrook Brigade member Elwyn Toby also remembers seeing the truck in action at the Thangutti community when he was a child. It was a blessing for it to come back because it gives memory to the uh, elders that was on the fire brigade. So I knew of them but it was a mentor for me too, to see you know, our Indigenous you know, leaders step up and have a go. It really inspired me, you know, as a child, watching you know, our uncles and aunties jump on the truck and you know, become firefighters, and that's where I get my inspiration from. I feel like helping others helps me. Elwyn is also a cultural arts teacher, and he's created an Indigenous artwork which now features on Bellbrook's current fire truck. Well, I did the artwork, it's just a recognition for our, um, our local Indigenous population that lives in Bellbrook and uh, in the wider community. So the artwork is about coming together in the fires, so we work as a, as a team. It's hoped the new and old trucks will eventually be displayed side by side. Just great to keep that history in going, you know, so I'm very proud to be a part of the job, you know. So we're looking for a cow pat with a little bit of dirt that's come up through it. At a farm on far north Queensland's Atherton Tablelands, these people are behaving in a rather strange way. They're searching through piles of cattle dung and looking for a little animal that has one of the most unappealing and yet important jobs in the world, eating animal droppings. 
Dr Bernard Doobie is the world's leading ecologist specialising in studying this small and misunderstood creature. This is a beetle that comes from the high rainfall districts of uh, eastern Africa and we introduced it about 30 years ago uh, and it's got a very restricted distribution up here on the Atherton and hardly anywhere else in Australia but up here it's doing a great job and it, uh, what it does it digs a tunnel to about 20 centimetres, something like that, lines the tunnel with dung, and so the earthworms that are here, they go down feeding on the dung that's lining the tunnel, and then down below, the beetle puts perhaps a half a litre of dung, something like that, a huge amount really, and lays a whole lot of eggs in it. The eggs hatch into larvae, the larvae then eat all of the dung. The adult beetles feed on the dung juices and the larvae feed on the dung fibre. And so um, then the larvae crap out all of the, uh, excuse the word, but they crap out this processed stuff which is rather like compost. And so you've, down at 20 centimetres you've now got earthworm casts and down below you've got a great big pile of uh, plant nutrients already. And so the roots grow down there and so you get increased production and increased carbon storage because it's a relatively permanent change in the structure of the soil. So the dung beetles are a great benefit in terms of increasing the permeability of the soil to moisture. But up here the water goes straight in. So the primary benefits up here are to get the dung underground, stop pasture fouling, and also then to increase the subsoil fertility of the, of the region. And so this will last for quite some years. And so over time the whole pasture will be processed by dung beetle activity and uh, our experiments from southern Australia indicate that we get about a 30% increase in productivity due to the uh, dung burial activity of the beetles. Hello, I'm Tanya Murphy. I've come along to Victor and Gail Abernethy's property at Wondekla, about 90 kilometres inland from Innisfail, where the couple run a small herd of cattle. Gail says these dung beetles are vitally important for the local cattle industry. Cattle are introduced to Australia. There are native dung beetles, but they eat marsupial dung, so kangaroos, wallabies. So before the CSIRO back in the 70s and 80s introduced dung beetles from overseas, there were lots of dung on the ground because it wasn't being processed. Cattle dung attracts flies, and that's why the Australians have the fly salute and had corks on their hats because there were so many flies. The dung beetles take the manure and bury it, so that reduces effluent runoff into the reef, it improves the soil quality, it creates aeration of the soil so you've got less runoff from rainwater. But there's so little research and development being done in northern Australia where all the cattle live. Most of the research about dung beetles is in southern Australia, but most of the cattle live in northern Australia. Gail began ordering dung beetles from southern breeders in 2014. But she soon realised there was very little information about which species survive well in northern Australia at different times of year. So she and a group of other farmers on the Atherton Tablelands obtained a landcare grant to undertake their own research. And they haven't been afraid to get their hands dirty. You need a shovel and a bucket and manure. So you take your shovel and you find a cow pat that's at least 24 hours old and put it in your bucket with some soil and then empty some water into it and they will float to the top in a graceful style and then you can collect them and see what you've got. So we have been one group of farmers of 15 who have collected beetles once a month for 12 months and we now know 
we have nine separate species of introduced dung beetles and four predatory species. So they're the smaller ones who eat the fly larva, not so much the dung. And some of our beetles don't live down south. They're just up here in, the, in our tropics. Natural resource management consultant Louise Gavin is assisting the group with the project, while Dr Doobie is in charge of beetle identification. He says the study has revealed a gap in the winter population of dung beetles, which the group can now address to ensure year-round waste management. What this project has shown is that we have quite a diversity of beetles here. They're active during the summer, but at this time of the year, in autumn and winter, although there are some beetles present and they're burying dung, uh, they're not very common. Now, uh, we've imported a a summer rainfall beetle from southern Africa and uh, called Anitis kaffir. And this is a great beetle, and it's active in autumn and in spring, primarily in autumn in the summer rainfall regions of southern Africa. And so I've been dealing with some land care groups and with other groups. In particular, at Cowra, there's a a men's shed, and the men's shed have been manufacturing field cages for us, and then we've been putting these out on properties and inoculating them with dung beetles, and then the farmers have been growing up the dung beetles and redistributing them. So that's what we hope to do up here. We hope that we can um, get some get some financial support to uh, establish a, a, a dung beetle importation program again, bringing in this particular beetle, which is uh, going to be most beneficial, in my view, at any rate. That was dung beetle expert Dr Bernard Doobie ending that report from Tanya Murphy in far north Queensland, where farmers are taking a close look at their cowpats and studying the beetles. You can see more on that story by heading online to the RN homepage. Look for A Big Country under the Programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, how an Indigenous ranger has overcome a fear of heights and is relishing a role caring for country from the sky. And sweet, juicy and delicious, figs are a special fruit treat that also have a rich history. We'll meet a woman on a mission to preserve their heritage. My son, my partner, Keith, uh, have a, a very dodgy old car and a very dodgy old van and we are looking for heritage figs, for lost figs in the deserts. In her dodgy old vehicles, Victorian woman Yasmin Sadler is travelling the country. She's on a mission to preserve a fruit tree that was brought to Australia by migrants when they made a new life down under. It's to preserve a heritage, natural fig heritage, that was brought out here by the migrants. They brought their best with them. They're still in our landscape. They still grow. So the passion to preserve them, to hear their stories and to see them being grown again by people that will understand the story behind these figs. Hello, I'm Kelly Hollingworth. I've met up with Yasmin in the southern New South Wales town of Euston, where she's seeking out an old fig tree that's growing on the banks of the Murray River. Her fig hunt is already into its third year, and in that time she sourced hundreds of cuttings. In Melbourne, I travelled over nine field fig trips. I sourced almost 100 trees and these produced about 300 plants, um, rooted plants in pots. The cuttings, that would have been times four or five. (laughs) So um, all these uh, cuttings uh, sourced from those trees, I freely also 
shared to other fig growers because that is very important not to just rely on one's own skills of rooting them and propagating but rather share and have other people um, examine, uh, try to ID and grow them in different climates. Are they difficult to propagate? They're very easy to propagate and they will live quite happily in a small pot as long as you bring the moisture and uh, nutrients up to them. On this trip, Yasmin Sadler is heading to Mari in northern South Australia at the junction of the Unadatta and Birdsville tracks. She'll be looking for fig trees planted by early cameleers and she'll be relying on an old-fashioned method to hunt them down. Word of mouth. I hope that some people will get a glimmer and remember a fig tree they saw somewhere and will point me to it and I will go... I'll take cuttings, I'll take photos, document the tree as much as I can and we'll try to grow it and trace it back to where it came from. This is the, um, the biggest trip and it's going to be some many hundreds of kilometres and we're heading um, along the Murray and then um, up through the Flinders Ranges and into Murray and we hope to contact people there that uh, have family connections to the original cameleers and we hope to follow the trails of cameleers and I understand that the Udna Data track is uh, directly the result of these of their movements. So we're hoping that by following somewhere um, we will find uh, their trees and, uh, and this is a, a total hypothetical situation. <laughs> we may have to go into Alice uh, around that area and then down to Sejuna. We've been told that there may be figs um, in Sejuna and then along the coast back to um, East Gippsland and um, we know there is a lot of figs in uh, Adelaide area We've been invited by figures there to uh, to come and they'll show us some fig trees they know of. Um, and I understand there is also an active garden club near the um, Grampians and they do have some figs f- al- along those uh, farms there. So um, we hope to do that on our way back. If this trip goes to plan, you you could potentially have a lot of fig cuttings. How will you manage that? The post office is the key. As soon as we collect cuttings, I will um, prepare them for travel and head straight for the nearest post office. And they will be sent out to um, fellow fig growers around uh, different parts of Australia where um, they will identify them by the number, by the code that I give them and we will grow on and we will try to identify over the years. It's a long process. To ID a fig, it can take three years. Here in Euston, Yasmin has caught up with Mick Harding, who is showing her a local fig tree that's believed to have been propagated from one that was planted nearby in the 1870s. I say it came up on a paddle steamer. I reckon it would have come up from Renmark, was somewhere in South Australia, Gilwa, and these 30 years that built the house there, they've somehow come by it. The variety is a brown turkey. It's lovely fresh, dries lovely and it's a big fig you know, lovely big fig I used to disc up close to the tree with a disc contractor and of course I used to cut some of the roots so little trees used to come up so I used to pot them all and give them away they're all around Robinvale and Houston they're the big trees now This is exactly the the sort of situation that I'm looking for a very 1800s fig tree that has been 
propagated and passed on by people that loved the fig. And by loving it, it's survived. It's here. And we can find the identity of, identity of it. It could be French or it could be a brown turkey. Whatever it is, it has been loved and can become part of our Australian heritage. <laughs> Joanne Pomery is gathering her gear and checking equipment before she takes to the sky. Right, These are the incendiaries and we feed into the rain dance machine that injects the glycol into the incendiaries. They fall down, takes 30 seconds before they're on fire. So we're just going to check if it's running smooth. The senior ranger with the Numbawa Numbarindi Rangers will soon be soaring high above this small coastal community in the southeast corner of Arnhem Land. She's part of a crew conducting an aerial burning program. By dropping incendiaries from a helicopter and starting small savannah fires, they're reducing the risk of destructive wildfires later in the season. So just them. They fall down just to make sure this runs around smooth. And how long will you be up in the air today? A uh, couple of hours today. Yeah. Right, and they're, they're just starting to, to light now? Yeah. And they just get a bit smoky and then they'll turn into fire. Right, and, and so the aim, I guess, is that some of these catch light and, and start burning and, and you can burn off country that way. Yeah. All of them, not some of them. Yeah. <laughs> All of them, right. <laughs> Hello, I'm Max Rowley. I'm here in the remote community of Numbawa on the Gulf of Carpentaria in the Northern Territory. After years working as a ranger, this is Joanne Pomery's first season up in the helicopter and it's a role she's enjoying despite a fear of heights. I really love it. <laughs> it's good, it's not so scary, but it's good to see where area you are and what you're looking after and what you're doing about it. Is it what you expected um, before, you, before you did it? No, I was... No, it's quite... looks quite easy when you're up there now, but it's just a bit scary when the wind blows and that, and I, but it's pretty good. Yeah, it sounds like it's taken a bit of courage for you to do this because you're not too fond of heights, is no, that right? I'm pretty scared of heights, but seeing the pilot and knowing that I've got to do my job gives me the confidence in myself to do it. So. What, what made you decide, you know what, uh, I'm, like, I don't love heights, but I'm going to do this anyway and I'm going to get up there and do this role? Well, I don't like um, something to win me, so I want to try and deal with my fears and by go ahead and doing it, you know. The, the aerial burning's coming to the end for the rangers this year. When did you start? We started in the, uh, about three weeks ago with the aerial burning as because of the grass is still wet with the weather changing. And we've done a whole big area within our seal IPA area. How has the burning gone this year? Um, did you get as much burned as you would have liked? Yeah, I think we did get through a lot, e even though there are some places that didn't burn well because of the grass still green. 
And how long have you been doing the aerial burning? Um, this is my first year this year to go up doing aerial burning in the helicopter. Um, I've been in this job three years, so this is my first time up. And encouraging, we have a new lady that's joined us from the LOC program and being a guide for her. LOC, that's learning on country? Yes, learning on country. So it's uh, good to see some new rangers coming up as well? Yes, I'd like to see more rangers. Just take me through why it's important to do this aerial burning as well on country. Um, aerial burning helps us to do fire breaks so we don't get a big wildfire at the dry seasons. And now that you're wrapping up with the burning, uh, what, what's next for you? What, what will the rangers be working on next? Uh, we check our roads, make sure no trees have fallen over onto the tracks that go out to the outstations. And plus we do, we'll be doing ground burning as well, some areas where we were a bit green when we started off. Right, you'll be finishing off a few patches that yes. you couldn't get to in the helicopter? Yep, yes. And Neem's tree, we'll be going and working on the Neem's weeds out at Waikaba. Thanks, Joanne. Have a good one up there. Senior Ranger Joanne Pomery. She was speaking to our reporter Max Rowley in the remote community of Numbua in Arnhem Land. And before that, reporter Kelly Hollingworth chatted with fig hunter Yasmin Sadler, who is travelling the country on a mission to find and document Australia's heritage fig trees. You can read more on that fascinating story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program by heading online to the RN homepage. You'll find a big country under the programs tab. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.